How you doing? September's here. September. September's here. Kind of a gloomy start just for my own personal reasons. Uh, but uh, it felt like summer ended a month ago too. It's all right though. I mean, there's kind of a relief when you know summer's coming to an end. There's a lot of pressure during summer. Even when you don't do anything anymore. There's just It feels like there's this pressure during summer to make the most of it. Whereas fall's perfectly fine here too. Fall rules in this part of the country. You know, I'm doing the, you know, I'm on my Columbine spell. Like, it's it's like every, for every paragraph I read about Columbine, there's like four episodes I could do. It inspires like four straight nights of episodes. Something I was thinking about with Columbine, though, I don't know that I've talked about this before, is Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, when you look at what inspired them, like what their vision was, it was very much influenced by unrealistic fictional movies, video games, even the music they liked to a degree. It was like this very stylized violence. Because, you know, Eric Harris, both of them, but Eric Harris in particular was obsessed with the game Doom. And, that, you know, it provoked all these discussions at the time. They're still going on, but they were bigger then about, like, whether video games caused kids to shoot up schools. It's too easy to have a black and white view of that. It's very easy to be like, oh, look at all these kids who don't shoot up their schools but play the same amount of shooter games that the Columbine kids do and these other shooters do. And that it's, it's a very big point. It's a very good point overall. But I also don't think you can deny that the video games influence those particular kids. I don't think the discussion needs to be you making a decision whether or not video games influence that. It's a lot like porn. You know, violence is very carnal and primitive like sex is. And, you know, while, while in the past it seems like more men experienced violence firsthand, like more men experienced fights, a lot more men seem to go to war and kill people. You know, earlier generations, it seems like every other guy's a veteran, like the World War II, Vietnam era, and things like that. It seems like every other guy saw violence firsthand. And so even though people were more familiar with, with what violence actually is, they had more intimate experience with violence, they, you know, it, it was a far, it happened far less often. Like they saw violence way less often. It was something they experienced. So they had this intimate involvement with violence, but it didn't happen quite as often for most people. Whereas, you know, my generation, and I think my generation is really one of the first, I mean, maybe the younger Gen X, but it's kind of young Gen X, older millennials who were the first generation where young men just went home and they would simulate killing people for hours every single night. Every single night, so many young guys would play first-person shooters. And I never liked Doom or Quake or anything like that. I never liked anything that had... I mean, it, it's, it, it always seemed really depressing. Like, the visuals really depressed me. Like, these dark, organic, alien-textured walls. There's no relief like just level after level, you're killing things. And like the story is very thin. 
you're just killing these demon aliens on some other planet and the walls are just so depressing. It's like a bad mushroom trip sort of look. Wolfenstein was cool because Wolfenstein, it was like the story made sense and it was visually bright. Like you're in these bright lit hallways for most of the game and you're, you know, you're, it's, it's Nazi themed. So you're fighting Nazis Goldeneye, I mean, Goldeneye barely feels like a first-person shooter, even though that's exactly what it is. It's very bright, though. Like, Goldeneye's bright, and you're playing out the story of James Bond. There's a secret agent aspect. While you can be extremely violent, an effective way to play Goldeneye is to actually commit few murders and just kind of sneak around. But games like Doom, it was just, you, you're just blowing away these demon aliens in these really dark areas and it's like red it's all very the colors are very inside the human body sort of tones and i there was a family friend we had who was kind of he was the kind of the same type of kid as eric harrison dylan klebold he actually reminds me quite a bit of dylan klebold he actually reminds me quite a bit of dylan klebold has anybody ever told you that you remind me of dylan klebold has anybody ever told you that you remind him of Dylan Klebold, but uh, he he was very much like that. Not violent though. Like he didn't he he never had any violent. Uh, there were there were no real red flags with him, but he he was like the harmless version of that kind of kid. Just very nerdy. He was a few years older than me. He wasn't my friend. Like my parent, my mom was friends with his parents, sort of thing. But we ended up spending a lot of time with him when I was a kid, and. He was the kind of guy, though, where, like, there was a... This is before everybody was using the internet, and in, like, the mid-90s, like, 95, 96, they had a computer room, and he would just sit in that computer room in pitch black. Like, he had no lights on in the room, and he would play games like Doom. And, and even at the time, I was probably, like, what, 10 years old, and I remember thinking, like, this is really depressing and dark. Because he sits in this room with all the lights off, with this screen glowing, and he's just wasting demon aliens endlessly. There's no real story. I know Doom has a very... It's like you're a space marine saving a planet from an alien invasion or something. But there's not much of a story. And Eric Harris in particular, like he really deeply identified with Doom and started to see the world that way. And even Dylan Klebold did. Where I know there was, I think, a yearbook entry or something where Dylan wrote to Eric and said, like, I'm starting to see all people as, I'm starting to see people as uh, doom zombies. Because I guess you kill zombies in doom too. And he's like, everybody's starting to look like a doom zombie to me. And so even though I wouldn't say that video games influenced them to do what they did directly, it's what I've said about drugs, where weed is fine for most people. Weed is pretty benign for the vast majority of people. It's not that big of a deal. I know all the pros and cons of weed. I've smoked so much weed in my life. I know all the good things about it, the bad things, and in between. One thing I know for sure is that it bonds to its host. Where, like, I can smoke weed and lift weights, or when I was still running, I would smoke weed or take edibles and run. You know, if you're a creative person, it bonds to that. It doesn't make you creative. Like nobody is an excellent artist because they smoke weed. But if you already have that in you and you smoke weed, maybe you can do something interesting. Maybe not. And so weed bonds to its host. Drugs bonds bond to their hosts. 
I think it's the same for video games. Like video games bond to their hosts. Most boys could go home like my family friend and sit there in a dark room playing Doom for hours and hours every night. He grew up. He's a pretty normal guy from what I understand. He's doing all right. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, well, Doom bonded to them. And it's very apparent that they were seeing the world kind of as if they were in Doom. It was part of their vision. And you know, people always get into that Bowling for Columbine thing where they're like, we just want to know what's causing this and why. Good questions, reasonable questions in response to this increase in mass shootings. But nobody ever really gets to an answer. And people want to take like a black and white, like are guns part of the issue? Of course, you can't really separate guns from the issue. It's like I've said before, like, it's very, even though I'm against gun control, at least anything severe, I understand why that's someone's go-to response. Like, I understand why there's a certain sort of person who hears about Sandy Hook and says, we just need to ban AR-15s. I may not agree wholeheartedly with that. I may not agree at all. But I understand why. That's It's a logical thing to say. It's just, it's not the only component. Because the same thing applies to guns. Guns bond to their host. And it's it's the same thing, though, for, um, you know, when there's a mass shooting or just let's go with Columbine and someone's like, video games are to blame. I think that's wrong, but I also understand why you think it because clearly it was part of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold's pathology. But their pathology was picking things up from all over. They were pick like like a lot of things were sticking to them. Video games were one. I mean, they were really inspired by action movies, just normal action movies. We've all action movies we've all seen. Movies that I grew up watching on repeat. The difference is like with their pathology, that stuck to them in a in a different way than it stuck to me. Like I watched it, and for an hour and a half, I was excited at explosions and gunshots. Those explosions and gunshots meant something else to these guys who wanted to kill all their peers. So it's not black and white. You know, it's not as simple as like video games caused it. Video games didn't cause it. Certain individuals are deeply impacted, apparently, by simulating killing people as a part of their normal evening routine, something that younger generations of boys just didn't do. Yeah, boys will naturally gravitate toward that. Boys in the 1950s would pretend to have, they would have toy guns and pretend to be shooting each other. Boys in the 1990s had toy guns and pretended to shoot each other. Boys are going to do that. But the difference is like a teenage boy in the 1950s didn't go home from school and just simulate violence on a machine all day. Think about how crazy that is. He's just simulating violence in which he's doing it. He's, he's simulating that he is killing people every night. In all kinds of different scenarios. And those guys who are really into first-person shooters play a bunch of them. So it's not just one story. It's like you're playing out all these different stories where you're killing people with a gun. But that's the thing about Columbine, too, is just that it's often forgotten that it was a bombing. It was actually, the bombing was actually one of the most important things. It just didn't happen right. They did it wrong. They made a mistake or something. But their original plan was a bombing first and foremost. And you can see in Eric Harris's writing that he took a great deal of pride in his 
his bomb fetish. Like he thought of himself as this master mad bomber and he was obsessed with it. And he turned his bedroom into a bomb making factory. And that's a big part of this though, because the copycats don't really do that. I don't follow them very closely. Like when one of these shootings happens, like I kind of get like the basic gist of it. And not even that, like I, sometimes I don't even care enough to read anything about it. But in most of them that I'm aware of, they're, they're just shootings. And like we think of Columbine first and foremost as a school shooting when the original plan was for them to blow up the cafeteria and shoot anybody who fled. And they had a bunch of other bombs they were going to throw. They were going to blow up their cars. Their cars were rigged with bombs. And the way Eric Harris talks about it, like there's a, a heavy focus on the bombing. Like they drew a diagram right before they left the house, before they carried it out. And it was like a bomb. It was like, this, it, was like, a, like a, it said like the name of the school and then they drew a bomb. And they kept saying that throughout the shooting. Like in the library, they were overheard being like, well, this place is going to blow up. Even though the bomb failed, like they were still fixated on the bombing. But you don't see the copycats do that. Like if there were true copycats, and, and it's a good thing they're not doing this, but if they were true copycats, they would have, there, there'd be more bombs involved in these incidents. Instead, they tend to be more impulsive. Because as I said before, like Columbine, it's like the discipline and secrecy involved. Like, yeah, there were red flags. They acted out in other ways. Everybody knew they were into violence. They would joke about bombs and, you know, guns in the school and blowing up the school. They would joke about, about that stuff with their friends like any angsty teenager might or a certain type of angsty teenager. But, like, they, they were devoted to this cause. And I sometimes wonder, like, would, would if one of them got, like, a serious girlfriend midway through the plan, because they were definitely working on this for at least a year. They were at least plotting it for a year. And it seems like it, the better part of a year, at least, they were actually buying things and preparing and testing bombs and different things. So that's a long time for a kid to commit. You know, you think of like kids go in and out of phases. Like I was saying the other day, like I wanted a tattoo really bad when I was 16. By the time I turned 18, I didn't want one. You'd think that like kids who are plotting to blow up the school and kill people, you, you could see them losing interest after a year, especially knowing they're about to graduate and all that. And then, too, there's so many other factors that could have contributed to it. Like, if one of them met a girl, like, they were hard up for girls. You know, they, they had girls in their lives and stuff, which is interesting. But it's like neither of them had, had a girlfriend and stuff, or a serious girlfriend. But if, like, one of them had met a serious girlfriend, lost his virginity and that, you do wonder if that would have changed the plan. But it actually kind of seems like they were more committed to the plan than anything else. They were more disciplined about their plot than they were anything else in their life. And I'm not even sure that something like meeting a girl would even have changed that. Because they, they had interest from girls, interestingly. There were girls who liked them. Like there was that blonde girl who bought him the guns. And she begged Dylan Klebold to... And, and you know, she was out of his league. Like, you know, she, she was like, you know, a decent looking girl. Like she wasn't bad looking. Not the prettiest girl in school, but like not bad looking. And uh, she begged Dylan Klebold, like way more normal than Dylan Klebold, who looked like an insect or something. And she begged him to go to prom, and he went. And she was clearly interested in him. 
like she had a crush on him and she was like trying to get him out of his shell and he went with her you know he might not have had a, he, he might not have reciprocated her feelings and stuff but it's like there was a girl interested in him who really liked him eric harris had a date right before the shooting like he had a date with a girl where they like watched a movie in his bedroom and she was apparently into him and she was once again like a pretty normal girl i don't remember what she looked like if i've seen her but if i've seen that poor girl who went on a date with eric harris two days before he killed people but either way these guys had interest from girls they might not have been their dream girl but it's like they were doing better than a lot of guys a lot of like today's incels had to have much worse they don't even talk to girls they don't get asked to the prom by girls things like that uh, so i don't even know if that would have changed things like for all i know those guys actively turned down a lot of very good things that could have impacted their lives positively because they were so committed to this plan they had and the secrecy and discipline of it all too just to like not brag and it's it's almost like the the inverse of like when kids start a band like boys that same age like 17 18 years old they'll get passionate about an interest and like a band is a good example because they'll collaborate where you could have seen those two exact boys going oh hey we're really into industrial music and computers they're both creative like even they, they were like little drawings both of them did too that were like better than the average person can do they might not have been the best artist around but they're little sketches and stuff they're not terrible they were clearly creative and clearly passionate about music and it's like if those two guys had started an industrial band probably would have sucked probably would have sucked but still like you could have seen those two guys attacking that with the same level of passion like both those guys loved hardware they loved digital stuff they loved tech they were really crafty they loved building bombs like you could have seen those guys getting really into like an electronic music setup like drum machines synthesizers samplers like you could see those exact kids getting into that and when kids do get passionate about a band like the ones who usually do something with it are as committed as eric harris and dylan klebold were about their shooting like i think about two friends of mine who got really serious about making music when we were teenagers and at the time i was struck you know we had kind of gone separate ways and you didn't always get along but what struck me at the time was like how disciplined they were like there was a day where it had snowed and i saw one of them walking in the snow it was heavy snow and he was walking in the snow with his guitar to go to the other's house to practice he didn't even see me you know we were friends and stuff but like he didn't even see me and i, I remember just like seeing him walking a distance away and being like shit like he's committed those two guys are really committed to this music thing they're doing and sure enough they got famous they got well known they've made a life for themselves they're a well-known band and i could see the work they were putting in like it may not have been something i was into but like when i look back i'm like they weren't doing that for attention you know while they might have wanted attention for their music and stuff like he wasn't walking through the snow because he knew somebody was watching like he was committed to this plan they had this plan to make music and it's like they were nothing like eric harris and dylan klebold but just the way they committed was very similar like they were they were getting a sense of meaning out of this plan 
and you know people think of it as a a shooting but really it was initially planned to be a bomb and what i was going to get into about them what I, i haven't even talked about it yet but what i was thinking about that made me want to do this episode was just how they were more influenced by video games movies dramatic fictional portrayals of violence like they had a really unrealistic sense of what violence was and real violence like during the shooting didn't seem to shock them who knows what would have happened if they had stayed alive and everything but it didn't seem to shock them once they saw what like real true carnage is but like their inspiration was very stylized and they were aware of other terrorist and school shootings like they i know in one of their their videotapes they talk about it but what's interesting is like they talk about how like they were into the Oklahoma City bombing and they were uh there was like another mass shooting they mentioned but they're very quick to distance themselves they framed it as like we're aware of those other shootings but this is our own unique jewel it's a dark and horrible jewel but you can see that that desire like even though cuz you you think about it and it's like what do they care about being unique what's most important to them is they kill a lot of people and kill themselves so it's funny to me that like in the like 2 weeks before they do this they're worried about other people thinking they were copycats like you'd think like once your brain is at the point where you're like I'm going to go kill a bunch of people and die doing it you'd think you would no longer care about you know you, you think you would no longer care like whether somebody thinks you were copying another school or not but it was very important to them to Eric Harris at least to say we're we're not inspired by that other school shooting like we were planning this before he actually says that he says we were planning this before that other one happened which is an interesting contrast to the school shootings that have come since because the school shootings that have come since Columbine will openly say it's a tribute to Eric and Dylan they'll openly say like that they're a student of the Eric and Dylan philosophy and their heroes to them and all this stuff very interesting that these copycats openly admit they're copycats they openly admit they've taken inspiration from columbine cuz columbine wasn't doing that they weren't taking inspiration like they were actually creating something new and they did it was horrible if i need to give a disclaimer in case you didn't know in case you didn't know massacring your classmates is a, a bad thing to do but they did create like a genre of violence and those kids who who are copycats or they took inspiration from Columbine they're basically like I'm playing in that genre I'm starting a band in that genre whereas Eric and Dylan were just kind of like we're going to do this thing and it's ours and you know what they were right there really was nothing like that before they did it there's really nothing that is a, as memorable and it, it is like they created a genre of violence mass shootings existed they weren't the first per- people to shoot up a school but they turned it into like, its own genre or subgenre and i hate to say that i i hate to like give their souls the satisfaction of that of saying like you yeah you carved out a niche well you can carve out a, a bad niche you know <laughs> you can carve out a, a niche that causes the entire structure to collapse but these kids who have come since then like 
they're not very memorable for one. Like they come and they go and they they often exceed the body count of Columbine. But nobody remembers them. Nobody's interested in them. Nobody thinks about them. And I think that's for all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons is I think because they're just like, hey, we're inspired by these other guys. Like they're openly admitting to being inspired by Columbine. They're less influenced by these fictional portrayals. And and they also, you know, they've taken in information in, in a different generation where the internet existed when Columbine happened. But all there was to do initially was to watch the news about it, read articles. Most of what you're going to find online about it during the first couple of years would have been just kind of articles. It would have just been news type stuff as far as I know. And, uh, you know, so you just took in the information much differently, more slowly. It took a while for books to come out, things like that. I didn't follow up. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to any of that. I didn't really read about Columbine until later. Like I paid attention to what was on the news and what people were saying. I listened to some of the interviews and things, but I really didn't pay atten- that close of attention to the details until quite a while later, many years later. But when these new ones happen, it's like we're immediately given all this information about it for one. But those people have also been mining data about Columbine for years leading up to this. They're students of the game. Like you think about uh, Sandy Hook, and that's that's another crazy thing about shootings is like they, they these names of schools are burned into our brains. It's Columbine. Like when you say Columbine, everyone knows immediately what that is, even people who weren't born then. And you think about it, like you see that word a lot. Like it's probably in less use now because of the connotation. But I mean, it's the name of a flower. And even though everybody knows what that flower is, everybody's heard of the flower, Columbine is now permanently associated with that one event. That word is associated with that event. It owns it. And Sandy Hook, I mean, not like you're going to hear somebody say Sandy Hook in any other context, but still, the fact that you even know the name of the elementary school shows you how these events get burned into our brains. But what's interesting about Sandy Hook is it's not that interesting, but it's it's something I've noticed about it. And I don't know a whole lot about it. You know, I it's just that was one where I was just like, I don't the less I know about this, the better. I read a little bit about the killer. One thing I do know about him though is he was very active on Columbine message boards, on mass shooting message boards, things like that. And he he saw himself as a student of the game. Like he had spreadsheets. He studied the statistics. He saw himself as like a student of the game, and it was a game that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold created. And his postings and stuff, from what I've seen, yeah, very clinical about it. He was autistic, and I mean, just making a spreadsheet of like school shooting data is pretty autistic, but he was, he was very autistic, severely. And he saw himself as a student of the game, like he was studying it so that he could carry out one too. And the fact that he chose an elementary school and killed a lot of kids. It was all kind of part of that. Like I'm a student of the game. It was like, he had a very clear plan. It's like somebody who sees, I keep using this music comparison, but I think it works. It's like, it's like somebody who starts playing music in a genre and has studied that genre, like a science. And all they ultimately do is just like make a competent version of it. But there's nothing, there's nothing, 
transcendental. Because, I mean, here's what I'll say about Columbine. It's transcendental in a strange way to everybody, not just to the Columbiners, not just the Tumblr girls on, who are obsessed with Eric and Dylan. It's also, it was, it's transcendental for everybody. It has kind of a spiritual connotation for everybody. And I don't know, like, like this, like a kid, like the, the Sandy Hook one who it's like, it was very clinical. Like he was studying shootings. He was studying Columbine. That's, that's the kind of shootings we're dealing with today. Like even Virginia Tech, which is like the last school shooting that I've, I really read much about just to see what, what he did and everything. And I remember, uh, he made a statement, he made a video. He's like, this one's for Eric and Dylan or something. There was nothing that interesting about him aside from once again, like severe autism. But you could tell he had studied Columbine. He was a fan. Like all the school shootings to happen since Columbine, they're fans. And if you look at the ones before, like Kip Kinkle and things, it's just like a deranged kid. It wasn't stylized. He just like killed his parent and then like went and shot up somebody at school. And it wasn't that well organized or anything. It was just kind of this hot-blooded moment where like I'm so mad at the people who have made my life hell and I'm, I have poor mental health to begin with. So I just snapped. Columbine created a whole new game and now people who do shootings are like I'm playing that game that they created in honor of the people who created it. Just a very different type of thing. Like they're not even attempting to be like, no, 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 my shooting is unique. You'd think there'd be more of that. You'd think with all the vanity and narcissism that goes into it, there'd be a lot more of like, no, 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 my shooting is going to be different. I'm not influenced by Eric and Dylan. But no, they're just straight up like, that's that's my inspiration. And I think that's that's what we're seeing all around, though. It's like, it's interesting that's reflected in school shootings because that just seems to be the time we live in where you see where like a lot of creativity now is people just being like, I'm just going to do like a competent version of what somebody else already did. A lot of metal. I see this a lot in metal. You know, there could be more innovation going on in places that I don't pay attention to. Like I am past the point of no return as far as like being culturally relevant or aware of what's actually going on among youth. But still with the stuff that I, I like the stuff that I'm into. You think about something like uh, heavy metal, just different genres of metal. And it's been a long time since anybody did anything significant or new or, or truly innovative. You know, someone might have an argument against that, but what I see is very little to none. What you have are a lot of people who are like, I'm going to do what that band in 1982 did on their demo and I'm going to do it perfectly and I'm going to dress like them. I'm going to, I'm going to, or, you know, they trick you into thinking like, oh, this is, I'm creating something new because I combined this and this, but it's just, it's that Frankenstein shit. Like if you look at eighties metal, for example, all, especially as like the quote unquote extreme metal genre started to kind of emerge around the mid eighties, what you see is new branches growing out of the tree. Like heavy metal was way different than rock and roll. Like, yeah, you can say like very early heavy metal and hard rock are more similar than they are different. But at some point, like heavy metal became something distinct from rock. 
Like, yeah, maybe there's some old guy who's like, I, it's just rock to me. It's all rock. Oh, it's just two guitars and a bass and a drum kit. Like, it's all rock and roll to me, man. There are people who said shit like that. It's all rock and roll to me, man. It's like I was at a death metal show in high school and I smoked weed with these old guys. They're probably in their 40s. And one of them's like, it's all just, I was talking about death metal with one of the guys and he's like, it's all just Slayer to me, dude. And I'm like, I know what you mean, but we're at like a Nile show or something. You know, it's not just Slayer. But anyway, like you could make an argument that heavy metal is basically just hard rock, but it's like at some point there was a, a breaking, a, like at some point a new branch started to grow where all this metal, it wasn't really just new forms of rock and roll, like something different was going on. That's at least how I feel. But it's been a while since I feel like I've noticed a new branch growing, at least in the things I pay attention to. What we see are like twigs branching off of, you know, larger branches and then even smaller twigs branching off of those and then twisting with each other. And like what you have are just these like Frankenstein mashups. Like people trick you into thinking they're doing something new by just basically making a Frankenstein mashup of different pieces that don't really form anything new and cohesive. And so I just don't see much new life growing from the tree itself. It's just branches getting more gnarled. And I think that's true for a lot of our culture. You know, it's like we've been in the remake reboot mode for the last 20 years. And so you don't really expect anything new movie wise. You know, I know new things do come out. I knew there are, I know there are things that are different, but I think one big reason for that with movies in particular is like, yeah, there were always remakes and there were always reboots. And a lot of it was kind of technological in nature. Like they would make a movie in the 1940s and then they would remake it in the 1970s because they were like, technologies changed drastically. We can do this better. But if you look at like between the 1970s to today, things haven't improved enough technologically that there's any reason to remake things for that reason. And often, often it's worse because I mean, I'm not even a movie guy, but like to me, the 1970s were the best looking, best feeling movies, whether they were high budget or low budget. There's just something about movies in the 1970s that to me are the the best looking. They kind of defined what a movie is for me. And, you know, you could recreate that with a little bit better technology, but I mean, you've also lost a lot of cool technology. But when they started remaking things that were only like 20 or 30 years old, if that, it's like, this wasn't necessary. There's nothing like new and cool you can do technology to make this a better experience. You're just rebooting things and remaking things to because you think that will sell a certain amount of tickets. And people aren't coming up with anything substantial. That they're, they aren't coming up with original stories that are very substantial either. And so we've been dealing with that on a mainstream level, just this constant reboot, remake culture combined with like, let's make new ones of that old thing. Oh, let's, let's make new Star Wars movies forever. So it's just the same thing repeated over and over again. And things are, it's like, it's like there's very little that really asserts itself uniquely. It's like, and you see this in music, you see it in movies. Somebody who's really into movies could probably give me a list of a hundred movies from the last two years that are original. Maybe, I don't know, but this is what I see. And the things I pay attention to, 
things have just stagnated. And so all you can really do is pay tribute or create your own Frankenstein versions of things and tell people, you know, you did something new. Interestingly, that's true for school shootings as well. Like the Columbine guys did something that nobody had really done. Even though this plays into their vanity, I have to be honest, you know, like the Columbine guys absolutely did something that hadn't been done. The The whole plan as a whole, and it, lasted, it left a lasting impact that nothing like it has. Like school shootings before that, mass shootings before that, people didn't even remember those. They weren't even that interested in who did it or anything. It was a news headline, information came out, but people didn't form cults around it. People weren't inspired by it. It didn't create a subgenre or a brand new game that other people were going to be like, I'm going to play that game too. And I was, the other night I was reading these AOL chat logs between Eric Harris and a girl he talked to online who he never met. Something I feel like you should never be. Never, why is that publicly released even? But I, I couldn't help but read it. And, you know, it brought me back to like those AOL days because I was talking to my friend Kyle about that because we were both on AOL back in those days and chatted with a lot of people, instant messaged a lot of people. And we were talking about it like a few months ago, Kyle and I, and we were like, what did we talk to people about? When we were sitting online at night, just chatting on instant messenger, and every night you'd have like 10 boxes open talking to different people, people you knew, kids who went to your school, people you never met, people older than you. And even if you had common interests and stuff, it wasn't like you just sat there talking about common interests all the time. Like you just talked, I guess. Like I think about it and like random girls at school would message me and just be like, hey, I'd be like, hey, and they'd be like, how are you? And I'd be like, good, how are you? Good, what are you up to? And it was just sort of like, hey, we're just going to chat more than we probably do at school. But I, I look back and I'm like, what did we even talk about? I feel like if I were to do that today, I would just lose interest in a second. Like if I were just to get an instant message on Facebook from a girl, even if I liked her, I would just be like, this is interesting. This is fucking boring. Not that she's even boring. It's just like, I, I can't imagine just like chatting through an instant messenger like that. But I guess it was new. Just the fact that you could do it at all was kind of part of the draw. But reading Eric Harris's chats with this girl was interesting because it's like, it, she had a boyfriend and she lived elsewhere and they were, and she was like complaining about her boyfriend and then saying like she wishes that Eric was closer to her, lived closer to her. And she was kind of, they were kind of flirty, but not, not really. It was just kind of like light flirtation. And then at one point he goes, what do you think when you look at the stars? Just out of nowhere, this rehearsed line, like totally unnatural. And this particular girl, she kind of goes on about it. Like, she's like, oh, wow, gee, I think of this. And she starts like, she's like, you know, I just think like there must be life out there. And what's funny is there's another conversation he had with a coworker who he really liked. And like, she's kind of receptive and talking to him in a friendly way. And then out of nowhere, he goes like, what do you think when you look at the stars? So this was his line. His late night instant messenger line for girls was like, what do you think when you look at the stars? 
And this other girl, though, that he worked with, like, she just shuts him down. She's like, um, I'm not comfortable answering that question because my mom keeps coming in and out of the room. And I just, I wouldn't want her to read me talking like that, which is funny because it's not like it was inappropriate, but like, clearly she was telling him like, don't ask me that lovey dovey shit. I'm not interested in you. And you can see like, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you uncomfortable. And she's like, no, it's okay. My mom keeps coming in. My dad's out of town. So she's needy and like is looking over my shoulder. Trust me, if a girl wanted to answer the question, what do you think when you look at the stars? Like she wouldn't give a shit if her mom was in the room. But the rest of the conversation, she gives him like one word answers. And it's like, ah, I see. But it's weird to see into that because like that's the thing is all the data that was released after that shooting, it's like you can see things like that. You can see this this doom-obsessed... You know, he, they were into that whole paramilitary thing. Like they were, people called them goth. They weren't really goth. They were goth. Uh, they were kind of mall goths for sure. But it was like that paramilitary mall goth, where like they're really. I knew kids like that. They hung out with the in the corner. They hung out in the corner of my junior high with the goth kids. They were analogous to them. They weren't the exact same thing. Like people aren't capable of understanding the difference between a paramilitary mall goth and a goth kid world's difference, but they mingle together. And what was I going to say about that? Um, I don't know what I was going to say about it. I just want to make that point for sure though. Like that paramilitary mall goth was, and probably still is a certain type of kid. Well, they kind of imagine they're this rogue military turned hitman guy and i think about this kid that i went to junior high with robert and a lot of days he would wear like a tucked in flannel shirt tight jeans jeffrey dahmer glasses he had some sort of bad speech impediment he might have been a little slow he was nerdy but he i don't think he did well in school and he hung out with the goth kids he hung out with the, the mall goth crowd and that kind of thing he hated people but he also had this paramilitary side where he would wear camo and fatigues and he had this military hat he would wear. And so like, even though he had this weird straight lace thing going on, like tucked in button up shirts and tight pants, Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. And by then like late nineties, like 1998, nobody wore Jeffrey Dahmer glasses to school. Like all kinds of people wore those decades earlier, but like if you wore those big Jeffrey Dahmer glasses in 1998 to your junior high, like you were weird. You were weird. You're weird. You're weird. Uh, but he, he also clearly had this like paramilitary fantasy where he wore fatigues and stuff. And I heard he did go to a military school. I don't know that he would have been qualified for the military itself though. He had something off. He had something wrong with him, but I heard he did go to a military school for high school or something. But that was a certain type of kid, like paramilitary and all that. And I guess just what got me thinking about that is just, just it's like you can see a kid like that's chat logs. Like he had this line for girls about like, what do you think when you look at the stars? Like I, I've certainly said really stupid things to women that I would hate to have publicly available. I guess if you massacre your classmates, you deserve to have those private moments exposed. But I've certainly said embarrassing things to women that I wouldn't want people to see. 
But that line is so cheesy too. Like you can see, just like his attitude toward violence was very dramatic and rooted in this like fantasy and fiction. You can see like his concept of like what you talk, like the sort of deep things that you talk to a woman about are that way as well. Like he's imagining that he's talking to a girl over AOL in 1997 or something, 1998. And the idea that like you're in a dramatic movie scene where you're on the hillside at night, sitting on a blanket, talking, looking at the sky, and you ask her, what do those stars make you think? What do the stars make you think? You know, you think you're in a movie or something. And you can tell his like idea of like romantic bonding was that way as well, where it's like, what do you think when you look at the stars? Very poetic. And then, you know, we see that side of him too. It's, you know, why Columbine is so interesting to people is like people have really studied the psychology of these kids more than they have most people they've ever met more than anybody in history in some cases. And with the copycat kids, it's not just that they're paying tribute and they're open about that. They're trying to look like Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold. They're, they say openly, this is for them. This was inspired by them. What's interesting about this new age of, of Columbiners and all of that for the last, I mean, I'm sure they've been around in some capacity since Columbine happened, but just now that it's it's kind of developed its own subculture unto itself. Like there's a genre of people who are obsessed with Columbine and relate to it and they gather together and they feed off each other. And some of them, a very small number, but some of them become school shooters themselves. And it's not just that they become school shooters as some sort of tribute or in inspiration from Eric and Dylan. They also try to take on their interests. Like I've seen where Columbiners play Doom. You know, these are kids. These kids were born after Columbine happened. And they're downloading Doom because they want to play the same old game that Eric played. Like they have a million video games at their disposal. They could play Call of Duty. There's tons of shooting games that are more realistic than Doom. But like they think, I'm obsessed with Columbine, so I'm going to play the same game they played. I'm going to listen to KMFDM like them. They like whatever they liked. So it's not just that the shootings aren't original. It's that like the worship of them isn't original. It's not like, oh, I'm my own individual and I relate to the outcasted, ostracized Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. It's... I'm an ostracized lost soul like them, but I'm just going to be into all the things they were into. I'm going to like every shitty band they liked. Like one of the things about uh, the Columbine shooters, it's funny to me is like one of their favorite albums was like the mortal Kombat soundtrack. <laughs> and it's the kind of guys they were like, they were the kind of guys who drive around the suburbs blasting the mortal Kombat soundtrack. Cause it's like electronic music. And now you have kids today who are like, oh, I worship those guys. Whatever they did was cool. I want to be like them. So I'm going to wear a shirt like theirs. I mean, I, I saw this. I was looking at a Columbine forum and there were kids trying to find where to buy shirts that they had. Like not like not the exact one, not like murderabilia or whatever they call it. They were just looking to find like a, like a, like a version of the same shirt. And crazy shit, too. Like, there was some video where Eric Harris was wearing a Denver Broncos sweatshirt. 
the national football team. They lived in the Denver area, so it makes sense. You know, he was just wearing a, a Denver Broncos. And, you know, those guys hated football players and stuff. It was probably some old family sweatshirt they had, and he happened to wear it. But I saw where kids like were like, where can you find this sweatshirt? I found one that looks almost like it. And someone's like, well, just keep searching for vintage NFL Denver Broncos sweatshirts, and one will come up. And they're actually trying to find, of all shirts, like we're not talking about like some iconic shirt that they wore in a famous photo. They're trying to find like from some random still from a video of him wearing a Denver Broncos hoodie or a Denver Broncos sweatshirt. And they want to buy that so they can wear that. They even want to wear like his hand-me-down stuff. You know know what I mean? Like they even want to wear that shirt that he wore one day because his laundry wasn't done. That's how deeply they want to identify with them. They just want to take on what those guys did and who they are. But it's because there aren't new branches growing. Like there's no school shooting that has happened or anti-hero. I mean, those guys are villains, not anti-heroes, in case you didn't know. But still, there's not some new villain or anti-hero who's emerged who speaks to kids in the same way. Like there's not some guy from 2010, 2015, 2019 who shot up his school who they say, oh, this guy's the new hot guy on the scene. Like nobody looked at Cho. Nobody looked at Cho, the Virginia Tech shooter, and was like, I want to be like him. (laughs) Nobody looked at him and was like, I I, want to listen to Collective Soul on repeat all day every day and barely be able to talk. I'm so severely autistic. Oh, I want to write like really fucked up like plays. He wrote that play like Richard McBeef where this kid's stepdad beats him to death. Like nobody thinks they want to be like him, but for whatever reason, they look at Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold and there's a cult. It truly is a cult. And when you see these Columbiners, that's what it is. It's, it is a, it is a cult surrounding two, you know, just goofy teenage kids who took this one plan really seriously. But something about it, in the same way that I find myself wanting to read about it, something speaks to these kids who want to identify with it. And not just identify with it, but identify with them specifically to the point of trying to be like them. There's a video I saw of somebody who, you know, there's that fa- that famous cafeteria footage where Eric and Dylan are kind of strolling around, throwing pipe bombs. The cafeteria is empty and they're just kind of shooting, throwing pipe bombs. It's the famous image of them. I saw where like somebody dressed up exactly like Eric Harris and recreated all of his movements in the cafeteria, but they're, but they filmed it. Like they put their phone or like webcam up on the ceiling so that it looks like surveillance footage. And it was just them like walking around their, you know, dining table, just like posing like Eric. And I'm like, that's so wild. Like they, they got a a costume to look exactly like him. And I couldn't tell if it was a guy or a girl. Because some of the Columbiner types are these kind of androgynous lesbian type girls, which is interesting. But I couldn't tell if it was a guy or a girl, but they had a buzz cut. They look kind of feminine though. And they were like going around the 
like their dining table posing like Eric did in the cafeteria. And I was just like, that's such a wild idea. It's like a religious ritual or something. It's like doing his exact movements in your house and filming it while dressed like him. It's very cult-like. And this isn't even somebody, you know, this person probably would never even shoot up a school. It seems to be about something else. Like these are spiritual figures to these kids. And watching that develop organically against all odds. Because there's nothing more... There's nothing more off-putting than a teenager who's obsessed with Columbine. It's social suicide. You're going to get yourself in trouble. You're going to get yourself on a watch list. Like, yeah, you can freely look that stuff up and go to forums and Tumblr and obsess over it. But it's not something you can just share. Like, you can't go to school and talk about Columbine all the time. (laughs) You can't go to school and like share your obsession with Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. You can't share that with your family. You can't share that with most friends. So this isn't something that has any kind of social reinforcement except online. And I don't think it could form except online. And interestingly, Tumblr played a big role. And Tumblr is also often blamed for some of the gender stuff we're seeing. Where that stuff really took off was on Tumblr, where these feedback loops of people just reinforced all of these really out there ideas about what it is to be a man and woman and what you can do about that. So these these very insular communities form in places like that. Not just Tumblr, but Tumblr was a big one. These kind of niche little subcultures form. And one of them, and I think it existed before Tumblr, but Tumblr reinforced these Columbiners which sounds like a radio signal. We got 10-4 Columbiner. We got a 10-4 Columbiner here. Um, sounds like a... <laughs> not, I think I'm thinking a Niner. How they'll, they'll say Niner. Yeah, we got a 10-4 Gat Niner. We got a 10-4 Gat Columbiner. But these communities formed around this, and they reinforced each other. And I don't know that that would happen without that. Like, I don't know if these people paying tribute and worshiping them would happen if they didn't have some people to talk to about it. Kind of like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold themselves were like, who knows if it would have happened if they hadn't reinforced each other. Like, what they were doing had spiritual dimensions to them. It was, like I said, they were jihadis. Their cause was not Islam, but they had a jihadi mindset. And the way they talk about their plan and their code words and their nicknames and everything, it all comes across very spiritual. And so I don't think it's a surprise that there was a spiritual response, very dark spirit, uh, a very dark spiritual response. It's a dark spiritual response. Um, but I think like you need somebody else to bounce that off to, to bounce that off of. And I mean, a lot of religion works that way where it's, it's reinforced by fellowship. It's reinforced by having confidants. You know, you can be a solitary spiritual person, but in order for it to like take on those greater dimensions for most people, you know, it needs some sort of, it needs something to bounce off of, and then it bounces back. 
And that's where you end up with fundamentalism. That's where you end up with extremism. Well, like both those kids on their own, both Eric and Dylan on their own, and who knows? I mean, I don't know if this is right, but both those kids on their own hated people, felt slighted, hated the school, hated the way they were treated, hated life, didn't see a future for themselves. But by themselves, what is what happens with them? I don't know. We don't know. But by themselves, like it's it has a much greater chance of dying out. It has a much greater chance of them meeting a girl and being like, oh, you know what? I'm actually more interested in this girl right now than I am killing people. But because there's two of them kneeling at the same altar, it's less likely that one of them is going to get up. And the ideas, the, the philosophy was something, and this is clear in what's available of their interactions, this philosophy they shared it was constantly being tossed between them. They were constantly tossing it back and forth and escalating their views. And neither one of them was willing to back down. And I think a big reason for that is because there was another one there. I think it's true for the kids who worship them as well, where like, they feel slighted, they feel ostracized. They misinterpret what Columbine was and see it as some sort of justified retaliation against a mean society. And that's one thing on its own. Like you can think that on your own, but when you go to a place where there's other people who think that and they're not backing down, you end up with something very strange and new and it becomes a cult unto itself. Like just like Eric and Dylan had a cult between them, the response is like, oh, we're going to form a cult around these guys. We're not going to do it for everybody. And if you've seen the way that Columbiners, because I am, I, I have looked into them, you know, I studied sociology in school. This is a, a, an, a, an amazing sociological phenomenon. But one thing I've noticed is the way they talk about later school shooters, they're interested. Columbiners are interested. They're like, oh, another school shooting. But I think they see it almost like, oh, another member of the cult shot people up. They don't see them as, as like figureheads like they do the Columbine guys. Like the Columbine guys to them are martyrs. They are Christ to them. But people who have done shooting since then, it's more like, oh, it's another member of the cult shot somebody up. God bless Eric and Dylan. Oh, there was another shooting in, it was in Virginia. God bless Eric and Dylan. That's kind of their approach. Like they, they see those as like peers in their cult doing things. And when you see these Columbiners who have grown up and gotten out of it, they talk like they left a cult. It's almost like a testimonial. Like I got caught up in this way of thinking and I thought it was cool and I was really alone and hurt and blah, blah, blah. And they, I was convinced that like these were my people and all this shit. We've gotten to see that evolve in real time. We've gotten to see several cults evolve in real time. We don't always get to see it. We didn't used to be able to see it. We just hear about it later. Unless you were actually a member of a cult or very close to somebody who was, chances are they were just something you read about if they got notorious enough to be on the news or something. We actually get to see them develop in real time online now. Like I got, I got to witness Columbine as an event 
on the news the day that day when I got home from school in seventh grade, I still remember it vividly. I remember watching the footage of the guy crawl out of the window and everything. And then I got to see it evolve into this cult among people who weren't even born at the time. So you can see how death cults form, because that's a death cult. And I'm not saying that they're organized like a cult. Like, that might exist. But, like, the Columbiners, like, they don't see themselves as a cult. They just see themselves as kind of, like, kin in their interest in Columbine and their obsession. And they see them as people that you can safely talk to about your disgust for life and society and your admiration of these guys who actually made life more disgusting but in their mind it was some it was necessary it was a sacrifice worth making that's how they see it they, they don't see themselves as part of a religion but everything they do and the way they interact with other people who follow that way of thinking is absolutely a cult And getting to see it develop has just been eye-opening. And we've seen it happen with politics. We've seen political cults develop. We've seen QAnon. QAnon. We saw QAnon develop. We saw QAnon. We saw, we, I, was, I was old enough to have seen QAnon develop. I got to see that. I, I didn't pay attention as it developed, but I was aware of it. And you can see where, like, even less extreme views have, have become a cult unto themselves. I mean, I, I talk about progressivism enough, but that's obviously very cult-like, a large cult. It's turned into a religion. But you can see where today's progressivism is very cult-like. And I got to watch that develop. I got to go from being like, oh, hey, we have these new ideas that we think will make society substantially better, and it makes me kind of a badass makes me kind of a baddest to believe these things where that's now just mainstream that's now common it's now corporate and getting to see that develop it's been very interesting because in that case like the whole world aren't going to become columbiners like very few people in history have been part of death cults You know, these political cults aren't death cults. A death cult is literally a death cult. It's not that figurative. Columbiners worship these guys who killed a bunch of people, and they themselves worship death. You read their writings and stuff, and they might not have actually known what death was and what they were talking about. They were at least faking it until they made it. Columbine killers. They they were faking it until they make it. They were worshiping death until they truly felt that. And sure enough, I don't think anybody can say they didn't worship death. When you look at what they did, they worshiped death that death that day. And so anybody who worships them is worshiping death. Their own death, the deaths of others. These more popular ones, like Columbiners are never going to be popular, I don't think. I don't, I don't think we're going to see Columbiners represented politically at any time, anytime soon. Oh, he's with the Columbiner party. 
Oh, he's running for president and he's part of the Columbine party. But you can see like a similar bloodlust exists in any time you have that way of thinking. You know, anytime you take on cult-like thinking, it's like bloodlust kind of tends to go along with it. Not that every cult has bloodlust, but it's just you set yourselves apart and you start to see everything else around you in opposition to you. And nothing will bring out paranoia and a desire for vengeance than that. But I don't want to get into politics. I just think we've, we've been witness to the development of these political cults. Just like we watched the development of mass shooting cults. You can see where we can make a cult out of anything. You know, we make fun of... I don't know if we make fun of it, but we, we talk about an African tribe who finds a Coca-Cola bottle and worships it, this foreign object. The Coca-Cola bottle becomes an idol. Well, that's not that far off. Like, we can see that we can form idols out of anything, too. I mean, you can see it with the George Floyd murals. I thought you said you weren't going to get political. No, you can see it with that, where it's like, no matter what you think happened to him and what should have been done about it, it shows you how random an idol can be. Like the, he was, like George Floyd wasn't a he wasn't Martin Luther King Jr. where he was this activist who had made a, a very big name for himself. He wasn't a philosopher. You know, Martin Luther King was, and so when he gets killed, it makes sense that he'd be a martyr and an icon and an idol. It's not surprising that people would take Martin Luther King Jr.'s image and paint murals of him. I saw some Martin Luther King Jr. graffiti today. They had a stencil of his head and one of his quotes, and they spray-painted it a bunch of times on the sidewalk. But you can understand how that would come to be. Like, you can understand why kind of a cult would, would surround Martin Luther King Jr. But what's interesting is to see, like, how random it can truly be. Well, like, I understand why people paint George Floyd and what he's a symbol of. But it's like he was just a random guy who died. And this whole thing built up around him. This whole thing was sparked off by him. But in terms of like him as a guy, it's very strange that he ended up being this face that you see everywhere. And it represents something beyond him. It's very strange that that came to be. And so you can see where it can truly form around anyone and anything. Like Eric and Dylan, like that's... Like, why did, why did a cult form around them? You know, it, I understand it. I, I've kind of, I get it. You know, no matter what I think about people who see them that way, like, I can kind of get it because, like I said, they kind of carved out a niche or a genre for themselves. But it's still pretty random. It's still pretty random that these two dorks in Littleton a suburb of Denver, managed to do what they did and create an entire following.
But it could just well have been anybody. It could just as well have been a Coca-Cola bottle falling out, falling out of the sky. Like those people, those same people who have attached themselves to Eric and Dylan, they could attach themselves to anything. And I mean, and that's what makes it so scary. That's what makes it so scary about cults is people become true believers or just cult-like thinking, let's say. People become true believers of very strange things out of nowhere. And it's not like, oh, that person believes something that I can understand. They're just really, really passionate and obsessive about it. That would make a little more sense if, if cult-like thinking only fell into that category. And that does exist. I mean, there are cults who are harmless. There are cults that are fine, I think. I'm guessing. And, and some are like that. Like, I mean, there are cults. I think by their very nature, like cult is obviously a pejorative term. But it's like there are cults that basically just take the principles of like a mainstream religion and just sequester themselves and take it really, really seriously. And usually bad things go along with that. But still, the, the basic premise is something you can understand. Oh, you took this thing that a lot of people get and agree with. You're just taking it to an extreme. That's not the case, though, with everything. Other things where it's like, this is truly just something out of the blue. This is something that just kind of came out of left field. And to you, it's worth worshiping. And that makes that way of thinking very untrustworthy, as if I need to tell anybody this. Like, oh, do you know cult-like thinking is untrustworthy? Oh, oh, really? But it tells you something about that way of thinking when you realize how random it is. It's not Martin Luther King Jr. It's this random guy. It's this random thing. But we're going to hold on to it forever. Things become a symbol. And another angle of Columbine <laughs> is the religion aspect of that, where a big storyline early on that's still never really been corrected is that one of the girls they killed, they asked one of the, before they killed a girl, they asked her if she believed in God and she said, she proudly said yes and they killed her and said like God is dead or something. And it came out that, because first they, like that was attributed to this girl, Rachel Scott, who's one of the most famous of the victims, one of the most well-known of the victims. One, I think she was the first person they killed. The story went that like they approached her and did that. And her family wrote a book about it. I think it's called She Said Yes or something. That might be about, I'll get into that because there's, there's these other girls who come into it. It came out though that like they didn't ask, there's no, there's no single witness who heard them ask her that. They just walked up and started shooting. There's no evidence whatsoever, no witness testimony that says they said anything at all to her. When they were in the library slaughtering people, they killed this one girl, this very pretty blonde girl. And somebody mistakenly thought they had asked her if she believed in God and she said yes. And so they killed her. Well, it turned out she didn't say it either. People know she didn't say it. Numerous witnesses confirmed she did not say it. That became a storyline too, where 
people made people have made books and movies out of the rumor that these two girls said they believed in God. And that was a different time too, when like the evangelical current was really strong in our culture and they would latch on to anything, even if it wasn't true. So they milked the the shit out of the idea that these girls were Christian martyrs who proudly expressed their faith before they were killed. It turned out to be totally untrue. They did ask a girl that though, but she was a girl who was injured in the library and they, they asked her, you know, do you believe, like she was saying, oh God, oh God. And they said, do you believe in God? And she said, no. And then she corrected herself and said, well, yes. Like she was trying to find the right answer. Like she was trying to tell them what they wanted to hear. And when she finally said yes, one of them just said, God's gay and walked away. And uh, God's gay. But she survived. And by the time this came out, like this whole movement was underway where she said yes. These two other girls, like you couldn't, you couldn't put the uh, you couldn't put the manure back in the donkey because like it had already gotten out. Like evangelicals had already latched on to these stories that these other girls proudly expressed their faith and were killed for it. And you know, it, it was a different time too. Like it was just a different time where like once a story like that got out there, there was no pulling it back. And the families went. The families were into it. They were probably coping that way. Because I'm sure people initially thought that. I mean, it wasn't that it was invented out of the blue. It sounds like the families initially thought that it was their daughter who said it. And like, how can you tell them that? It was it was their coping mechanism. That, oh, because these families were very religious. And they were like, oh, you know, we lost our daughter in this horrible tragedy. But she proudly procla proclaimed her faith right in the last moments. Like, that was the family's coping mechanism. And so to find out that... It wasn't true. It's probably devastating, and you don't want to admit that. But then they've also marketed it. You know, people have also marketed it heavily. And so when it came out that it was this completely other girl that nobody ever thought of, and she kind of hemmed and hawed about it, and was also a survivor. And then also, like, the fact that they didn't shoot her after that. Dylan or somebody just said, God's gay, and walked away. Which just shows you, I mean, I, that, that quote is so perfect because it's like, they're killing people, they're massacring their peers. This is this spiritual experience for them that they've been waiting to do. They've been working toward this for the last year. And then the sort of, like the phrasing, God's gay. Be like, wait, what? Like, I'm sure the girl who said it, she was in too much pain <laughs> and trauma to, to even think straight. But it's like, if I were her, I'd be like, wait, what? You're just going to say God's gay and walk away? That's, that's, you, you asked me if I believed in God just so you could say he's gay and turn the other direction. Good thing he did. But it just goes against the whole narrative that was created. But you can see where like a cult formed around that. This whole cult formed around the idea that these, these very pious religious girls stood up to evil and said, I believe in God, and were killed for it. And, you know, when you have that cult-like way of thinking, like, the facts don't matter. Like, when I was talking about police shooting statistics the other night, if you have faith in something, the facts don't matter. 
if you strongly believe in God and you're part of an evangelical cause, and you even think for a second, you were told for a second that your daughter professed her faith as she died, you're going to stick with that. The facts don't matter. The idea matters more. And it's true for anything. That, like, if you have that way of thinking, it's true for anything you come into contact with that clashes with your beliefs. You will find a way to spin it. You will find a way to overlook it. And it's too bad. It's sad. Because it's like, deep down, these families probably know the truth. Deep down, they probably know that it wasn't their daughter who said it. But do they want to face that? be very difficult to do that, especially if that was such an important coping mechanism. The idea that the death of their child wasn't this dramatic movie-like moment, because I'm sure those parents know more than anybody that an event like that is not cinematic. You know, I, I would bet that that experience told them, like, a mass shooting is not a, mo a movie. It's not cinematic. But as a coping mechanism, they thought about this cinematic scene where the killers confront her and ask her if she believes in God. It's like something out of a movie. When the reality is, they just said God's gay. God's gay. Not very cinematic. Like if somebody wrote that line in a movie, you'd be like, who the fuck wrote this? What that would come across like in a movie would be like the sort of dialogue like a 35 or 40 year old would write in a teen movie trying to think like somebody who thinks they know what kids talk like because you would see that in movies in the 90s like they would depict like radical skater kids and they would have them say slang that no kids ever said they would have the kids say things that no nobody you know would ever say and you'd watch the movie and you'd laugh because you'd be like oh they think kids talk like that that's what the whole God is gay thing sounds like. It's, it's, it's the sort of line, like if you were trying to depict like a moody, angry teenager in a teen movie or a, or a made-for-TV teen movie, you'd have them say, God's gay. But that's actually how Eric and Dylan talked. Like if you see the way they talked to each other, like they talked like people from a bad movie because in their mind, that's what they were doing. Their vision was fictional. Their vision was fantasy. It was cinematic. And it informed all of their interactions with each other. Like as soon as they settled on that plot, they started talking like characters from a movie about that plot. They started talking like characters from a bad movie about the events that were going to unfold. So them saying shit like God's gay, and they said a lot of stupid shit. Like if you read their writing and their interactions with people, they said a lot of really embarrassing stuff. It's the least of their crimes, but but they, they said some really embarrassing stuff. And it doesn't come across like, oh, these are a couple of dorks who talk this way. It came across as, oh, they think they're in a movie. Like they're saying things, and that's clear from the library massacre, like what's available about it is like the things they were saying to kids were like bad TV teen flick writing. It was like, nice glasses. Like, they said that to a kid. They killed this nerdy, like, 14-year-old with glasses, and they said, like, nice glasses, nerd. So it's like they were acting like bad characters from a, a TV movie because that's about the level they were on. They thought they were in a movie. They, they were acting something out cinematically. 
but they weren't good actors. <laughs> but they they were just they were willing to do it. That's kind of what makes them what they are. But with the cult following they've they've developed, these Columbiners, like they see lines like that and they're like, Man, he is like an action movie star. Oh man, he is cool. He is kind of hot. Because that's another side. Is like they look at pictures of them and they're like, oh, he's so cute. Oh my God, he looks so cute there. Oh my God, Eric Harris looks so cute there. Yeah, if you like little skinny guys who look really spiky. Because that's kind of what they are. Like you think about like the way Eric Harris looks. He looks very sharp and spiky. Which I think is played into like there, there's a whole myth too around the idea that he was the leader and Dylan was the follower when there's a lot of evidence that Dylan might have actually been the first one to fantasize about NBK. Like he was the first one to write about his NBK fantasy in his journal. Like his original fantasy and NBK stood for natural born killers, but his fantasy was to do it with a girl. He wanted to find the love of his life and to go out guns blazing. Whether he was the first one to actually initiate like a serious plot, who knows? But there is evidence that Dylan Klebold was certainly certainly had his own violent fantasies at the same time, if not before Eric Harris. But the narrative, like certain books have written and stuff, is that Eric Harris was the ringleader. Various things. He seems to have been the one who was like more meticulous. It was more of a clinical thing to him. Where he had the the paramilitary fantasies, like he imagined he was a rogue military marine, you know, a U.S. marine, and I think that kind of informs people's vision of it. Where like, oh, he's the one who initiated it. When there's not really any evidence, and there's actually some counter evidence. But I think part of it, it's it's physiognomy once again, where the picture, like the big famous picture of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold from their high school photos, the photos that were on the cover of Time magazine and stuff. Eric Harris, he looks like skinny and sharp and spiky. He looks angry. He looks dark. Like even though he's just dressed normally, like there's something angular about him and spiky. He's angular and he's spiky. Whereas like Dylan Klebold, he's tall and he's lanky. He's got like this big broad nose. He's got kind of longish hair. He looks kind of soft. He lo- he looks like a, a poet, which he wa- you know he wrote like really shitty poetry and stuff. But like he looks like a an introverted. He looks soft. And so you can see that like physiognomy added to the narrative. Like Eric's the spiky one, the sharp and spiky physical being and dylan's kind of the the one who sways in the wind and he's got kind of a uh he's got broad features and he he looks soft and maybe there's something to that (laughs) i don't know uh it's just funny because it's just like people project things onto them and they like to have a story they like in the same way they they go through the same song and dance about like why'd they do it what causes mass shootings? In the same way people go through that, people also have this very strong need to form a more cohesive narrative than the one that exists. And I think the most realistic narrative is that these two guys like hated everything, were best friends, shared their hatred, probably initially talked about violence in a joking way, 
started to realize that the other person was really fixated on that, maybe like had, had a moment of clarity where they were like, do you actually want to do that? I don't know if I call it a moment of clarity, but like a mo like a lucid moment where they were like no longer joking and they were like, wait, do you actually want to do that? I'm sure something like that happened, something along those lines. I, I can't see it being like a movie where Eric Harris like sits Dylan down and is like, I have this plan to blow up the school and I need somebody to help me. You know, I imagine it was more organic than that. But you can see the public wants there to be a story where it's like, oh, no, the spiky one recruited the, the big lanky one into his plot and he, he led the whole show. And people really latch on to that kind of thing. They like that idea. They like the idea that the guy who looks like the little ringleader was the ringleader. They like the idea that things are that black and white. And that's hard for people. In the same way people like the narrative about these girls professing their faith before they were killed. They like these other narratives about like who the boys were and like what the dynamic was between them. And I've seen a lot of material about it, you know, more than I probably should have. And I'm, I'm pretty convinced those two guys developed this plot organically. And they were both equally invested. They both requi required the presence of the other the reinforcement of the other. It's just that one of them was more meticulous about planning and strategy. And that happens to be the one who was obsessed with the military. Like he wanted to turn it into a military exercise. And what's described of them at the shooting is kind of like that too. Like he seemed more methodical, whereas Dylan was the one screaming and shouting and taunting so for him, it was like this emotional exercise, whereas for Eric Harris, it was much more clinical. Like he just wanted like a, he wanted to strategically kill. Whereas for Dylan, it seems like the torment was a big part of his attraction, like tormenting people. And I mean, it's pretty evident in the shirts they wore too. I'm really analyzing them here, but I'm turning into a Columbine. Oh my God, you, you started reading about Columbine and then you became a Columbine. How fucked up, how fucking weird would I be if like I, I got really into Columbine, like if I became a Columbiner at 36? I'm a late bloomer. Uh, but the shirts, like they, they reflect exactly what I'm saying, where like they had custom made shirts designed just for the killing, where Eric Harris's shirt said natural selection and Dylan Klebold's shirt said wrath. And that kind of explains their approach. Like Eric Harris had this natural selection thing where you like methodically kill people to thin the herd. Whereas like for Dylan Klebold, it was like this act of wrath. It was obviously wrathful for both of them. But with, with Dylan, it's like this wrathful torment. This, this like performative revenge. Wrath. It's an, it's an emotional sort of thing. Like I think of wrath as like a very severe, strong emotion. And that's kind of how he was. Whereas Eric Harris, it was methodical. Just thinning the herd. 
And obviously, you know, it's not distinct, like their views were very much the same and everything. But I think you do see those nuances. They had these, they both brought different qualities to the table that made it what it was. And obviously, just from the way I'm talking about them, you can see why people analyze them. You can see why people try to find something. And that's what they're trying to do. The reason why people are still obsessed is like, they're still trying to find that missing piece. And I don't know what they could possibly find. Like, if you just want to say, hey, this is psychologically and sociologically interesting and just kind of brushing up on it now and again is interesting versus like, oh, no, I'm obsessing over this because I'm just waiting for that missing piece. It's what I've said about my own interest in true crime, like losing interest in serial killers because I realized like I was always looking for that missing piece that's going to allow this to make sense. But I realized I was never going to find it. There is no missing piece. There is no like missing piece in a serial killer story that's going to make it all make sense. Because even if there's trauma, like you can find weird things out about them. You can find out this serial killer was sexually abused and his mother was a prostitute. Oh, this serial killer, he had the perfect home. He had the perfect upbringing. And you can see that, like that starts to become like Stepford, Stepford Wives Sinister or something. Sometimes it's more sinister, oftentimes it's more sinister when you're like, this serial killer has nothing in his past. There, was, there were no red flags. There was no trauma. It just happened. He just turned into that. Sometimes that can be more evil. But that's kind of what I was led to believe. I was like, oh, the missing piece I'm looking for is just evil. No matter what word you want to use to describe it, like I just came to the conclusion years ago, I was just like, oh yeah, like the missing piece I was looking for is evil. And I, I was looking for a missing piece I'm never going to find. And because evil is that missing piece, it's like it's everywhere in what I'm reading. Evil is on every page. That missing piece was the thing that binds it all together, which is evil. And so I moved on from the subject and like only kind of revisit it half-assedly here and there. Columbine, I think you could say the same thing where like I noticed from people who research it that they're looking for this missing piece when it's there. It's those guys got possessed by evil. Whether you want to call that mental illness, whether you want to bring in environment, environmental factors, like you could bring it all in, like let it all be a part of it. Evil infects everything. Evil infects the environment. And so with those guys, like if you're obsessed with that, just admit like, hey, I'm just indulging in this because it's fascinating. There's no missing piece. I'm not going to find that one piece of information that explains why it happened, who was the the ringleader. It's just not going to, I'm not going to get it. And, and even if you get more information, that's not going to tell you what you're looking for. Admit it's a morbid curiosity and move on or don't or just know what know why you're reading it. Know why you're indulging in it and admit that you're indulging in it. Because I see this a lot in like so-called true crime communities. Like the when I was reading a lot about the Delphi case, the Delphi murders, I realized that like a lot of people's obsessions are justified as I'm helping. By analyzing this, I'm going to help solve it. I'm Nancy Drew. I'm the Hardy Boys. By obsessing about this and indulging in it every day, looking at every random detail that's been publicly released, which of course is only 
uh, probably a small part of what law enforcement knows. But by obsessing over what's publicly available and trying to find more, I'm helping. I'm helping the cause. I'm doing a good thing. When what I see is just indulgence. I'm just like, oh, this is just indulgence. You're just indulging in this thing. But anyway, it's about all. I'm out of juice. I'm out of juice. I could probably find some other angle about Columbine to talk about. But I don't think anybody's going to find anything new that sheds any more light. Like, I know people talk a lot about what they call the basement tapes. Because there's apparently like three and a half hours of footage of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold in the weeks and months leading up to the shooting of them just talking about their plans, them talking about their reasons, them making fun of people, talking about their families. It's never been released to the public, even though some footage and stuff has. These basement tapes have never been released, and it's, of course, what people want. More than anything, they want these videos. I think people imagine that there's something illuminating. I think they would be. I'd, I'd gladly watch those. I hope they get released someday if they're still available. Because I would like to see how they actually interact and talk. Because we really haven't seen them talk at length as people. We've seen little like videos they made for school where they pretend to be hitmen and people have heard them talk. But nobody's really seen what it was like for them at night behind closed doors hanging out with each other. And of course it's performative for this video, but even that would be telling. It would be interesting to see those. But people talk about it as if there's these videos are the missing piece. Like if the public of all people can see this video, we'll suddenly understand Columbine and how to prevent it or, or what was really going on with them. I don't think that'll happen at all. I think if those tapes ever get released, it's going to lead to all kinds of other pointless speculation and analysis. I think people are going to see shadows in the background and freeze frame them and enhance them and come up with all kinds of theories about what that shadow is and who it is and why it's there. Because that's what they do. People literally did that with the Delphi case. Like somebody took pictures on the bridge where the girl near where the girls got killed. Not even the day of the murder or anything, I don't think. And they were like, look at that shadow down under the bridge. Look. And they, it's just like, a pixelated bush. It's just a pixelated bush. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's stuff like that where like even with very little, people will zoom in and enhance it and be like, look, the mystery's solved. There's a shadow under the bridge on some other random day when someone happened to be there. Oh, it's a, and then I, I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's a pixelated bush that's dark because it's under a bridge. But that plays into all this, like this need for people to take just a little bit of available information and get as much as they can out of it to get all the nutrients out. And once the nutrients are gone and they're digging for more, they're like, oh, I'm just looking for more nutrients. I'm just looking for more nutrients here. And it's like, just admit, like, 
you're just you're uh you already ate all of the orange and you're just uh trying now you're trying to eat the rind because you think there's some little spot of sweetness still left on it just admit you're a fucking savage who's eating an orange rind weird uh weird example there but just admit you're a savage eating uh, an orange rind I want you to, this would be my meditation routine. If I taught meditation, it'd be like, sit there. Sit upright, straight on your pillow. Now imagine that you're a savage eating the last of an orange rind. It's a Zen koan. If a savage eats an orange rind, I don't know. I don't know how that koan goes. That's kind of what it's like. It's like people are trying to like get all these nutrients out and they're like, I'm, just, I'm still looking for nutrients. When the reality is, no, you, you just, you're interested. When I say indulgence, I don't even mean that like it's a bad thing. I just mean that it's like you're no longer getting what you need out of it. You're overindulging in it. You're getting something else out of it more than just learning or processing or understanding. Something I had to learn myself about certain subjects. And what they say is really true. What they say. What Nietzsche says is really true. The more you pay attention to that stuff, the more it does something to you. It can even be very immediate and simple. Like I mentioned earlier this year when I was learning about the Delphi case, I hadn't read about anything murder related in a long time and just reading about the delphi case like i found that i was on my walks i was seeing shadows that weren't there i was seeing people hiding behind trees that weren't there not literally but i was just i was freaked out i was a little more paranoid and scared of the night than i had been the night before because i went to bed reading about a murderer watching footage of a murderer approaching his victims it freaked me out and the more you look at that stuff, though, like the more you see the world in those terms, the more the world starts to look like that. These Columbiner kids who read about Columbine to kind of cope with their own alienation, I think they start to see the world through the eyes of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. They try to recreate what they do. Not just the shooters, but I'm talking about those kids I mentioned who played Doom. They're 19 years old in 2022, and they're playing Doom. Not that there's anything against playing old games. I, I only play old games. But they're playing Doom because it was Eric Harris's favorite game. And when they play Doom, they feel like some sort of communion with them. Instead of eating a wafer, playing Doom connects them to Eric Harris. Instead of gospel music listening to kmfdm connects them to eric harris and they start to see the world through those eyes you know the the world doesn't become brighter because you found people to relate to the world becomes darker all those columbiners who are listening to my psa if you're a columbiner contact me at blah 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 at gmail i want to talk to you
I've seen where kids on those forums will even say, like, I, I was thinking of doing a mass shooting and I decided not to. I woke up. And I wonder, like, what do you say to those kids? Like, I see where people are like, good for you. Thank you. I'm proud of you. I was thinking about killing people, but I decided not to. Oh, thank you. But yeah, the longer you look at stuff like that, the more likely you are to develop idols and the more likely you are to see the world in those terms. But, whoa, Batty. Batty will do this thing where he, he, he's been sleeping a long time and he like rolls completely on his back and he's really vulnerable and cute. But when he's in sleep mode, he doesn't like to be touched. So it's like, it seems inviting. It seems like, oh, Batty's showing off his stomach so that I can scratch it. But if you do it, he'll he'll lunge at you. He really doesn't like to be bothered while he's trying to sleep. Turns out I don't either. But the only person bothering me when I'm trying to sleep is me. I'm the only one bothering me when I'm trying to sleep. But anyway, I'm going to close this out. Hopefully I got all the Columbine talk out of my system. Hopefully it won't stretch to four episodes. But uh, it always makes me think, in large part because like it's it's one of the, it's an event that I was a teenager for, and now that it's been what twenty three years, it's interesting to watch how it's continued to influence people, even though Columbine itself it was a, a gnarled and nasty branch, but it was a new branch on the tree. And now even the people who are trying to make that kind of bold statement, I hate life so much that I'm going to kill everybody. I want love so badly and I can't find it that I'm going to kill everybody. It's interesting that that hasn't produced any new branches. It just created new nasty little twigs that branch off from that main branch that Columbine created. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.